Um, I first met uh, Gunnar Hansen in seminary out in San Diego. Um, we, I was attending uh, before we went into missions, and I, I met this guy in class, and I, I heard him kind of sharing some of his stories, and I was immediately inter- intrigued because I had never met a Navy SEAL before, uh, let alone a Navy SEAL who had gotten into the ministry, and at the time he was training to be a pastor, and now he has been at his church, Valley Center Baptist Church, for about eight years, and um, has, uh, has uh, four beautiful children. His wife is a, is a missionary kid from Spain and grew up over there. And uh, so Gunnar, I asked if he would just kind of come here during this first part of our, our day and just share a little bit of his story. And I don't know exactly what he's going to tell you. Um, Gunnar is uh, involved in a lot of different things in the Southern California area. One of the things he does is he's a, he's a chaplain for their local SWAT team. And so he's involved a lot with them as they go out on missions and praying with them and encouraging them. And uh, I uh, got to spend the day together a little bit yesterday out, out fishing with some friends. And I and, uh, just had a wonderful time. And it was good to reconnect. I haven't seen Gunnar in about, about four or five years. And, and so it was good to just touch base and uh, see what God's been doing in his life. So I'm going to ask Gunnar if he'll come and, and just share what, what God's done and how God brought him to this point. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. I, uh, I'm glad to be here at Brown's Corner, Brown Corner Church in Michigan. I, I was asked a few months ago, Jeremiah hit me up probably nine months or so ago asking if I would come and share a little bit about my story. He wanted to know my testimony. And for the last nine months, I've been trying to think of how to start. I've never been to Michigan, and I feel like I need to start with a confession. Uh, my testimony, I think, needs to begin with my paternal grandfather, Uh, My paternal grandfather earned his Ph.D. from The Ohio State University, and uh, it got real quiet there. Uh, My my both my parents are from Ohio, and so it's interesting to be in Michigan today. I my secretary, my assistant is also from Ohio. And a few months ago, I said, hey, Melanie, you need to really I I need some help. Since you're from Ohio, you need to dig up some information, some, some jokes, or something that I can kind of warm up with as I share my story, beginning from my roots of, of Ohio. And so Friday, as I was about to fly out, or maybe it was Thursday, she handed me this piece of paper, and I started reading through it. There were things like, why did the Wolverine cross the road? Because it's easier than going across the goal line. And there were a whole bunch more that I'm like, this is just not appropriate to share. I'm getting, I'm also getting text messages as I'm, as I fly into Detroit on Friday, I'm looking around and I'm noticing that there's a ton of um, uh, the University of Oregon and, and Oregon State University, the Beavers. And I was just there a few weeks ago because my brother-in-law is at school there and he starts texting me. He's like, hey, you're speaking in Michigan this week? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you got to really rub it in because the beavers are coming to town. And he's like, but you might not want to say anything depending on how the game goes. And so I, as I was watching the game on kind of Google, seeing how the score was going, I, I probably shouldn't bring up that game uh, because it didn't look like it went that well. Uh, but on a serious note, it's, 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 I'm really glad to be here. I, um, I realized that the joke would be on me when I started doing the math when he asked me to speak at 8 a.m., and I'm on Pacific Standard Time. I've been here for about 24 hours. So it's 5 a.m. for me speaking. Uh, 
I got a warm-up yesterday. He texted me Friday before I got in. He said, hey, uh, we're going to leave early Saturday morning because if you're in Michigan, you either have to go hunting or fishing. And so I said, well, I'll go fishing. And he said, well, we got to leave early. And I'm like, well, wh what's early? Like I'm, and he's like, well, I'm going to pick you up at 5 a.m. I'm like, okay, so I'm going fishing at 2 a.m. tomorrow morning. And so it went, or, or yesterday morning. It was a lot of fun. Um, I do want to say that they, they told me they were going to edit this part out of the message. But, but, you know, Jeremiah and his family, they've been good friends of mine for a number of years. And uh, Jeremiah really, truly is a, a good, godly man. And you all are super blessed to have him and, and, your fa and his family uh, as um, your, your pastor here and, and leading the team here. So he just really is a godly man. He didn't pay me to say that. But I've been blessed over the years to get to know him and his family and to see how God has sort of worked in their lives from, you know, coming here by way of China and a couple other stops. And, and so it's a blessing to be here. Um, my testimony is sort of difficult to share. I'm asked to share my testimony a number of times. And so I, I um, the difficulty in sharing my story is I'm asked to, to rehash poor decisions and things that I'm really ashamed of in a lot of ways in my life over and over again um, because how God worked, I was such a mess that is a cool story now. And so I look back on my past and I go, oh, I wish I could just leave it alone. I wish I could move on and, and uh, act like it never happened. But the reality is, is Christ did a, a really, a truly amazing work in my life and um, saved me out of a bunch of um, really terrible stuff, things that happened to me, also things that I had done. Um, and so I share sort of cautiously. My wife is the, the polar opposite of me. She was raised as a missionary kid. I tease her that she came to Christ at about three days old and has been living for him ever since. When we got married, we said the only thing that we have in common is our love for Jesus and our love for Mexican food. And so we've, uh, over the last 14 years, we have more similarities than we did when we first got married. Um, but I, I've come, in, in my experience, uh, those young people who come to Christ at an early age and live for him from those early years of their life, throughout their life, to me, that is the greatest testimony out there. It's, it's something that I, uh, when I share my story, I don't want young people to think that they have to go out and get the quote-unquote rock star testimony. I feel like there's some in Christian circles who feel like, well, I gave my life to Christ, now I'm going to go out and uh, live 10 years to go do crazy, stupid things so then I have a cool testimony. Uh, my testimony is not a cool testimony. Uh, those who live for the Lord early on, those are amazing testimonies that I, I hope my children um, have when they're adults. Um, as I stand here, I, I, I identify with the Apostle Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so if you'd open with me in prayer as we start. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the work that you've done in my life. I thank you for your great loving kindness towards each of us. Father, I pray that as I share a small glimpse of my story, 
Lord, I ask that you would guide my words, guide my thoughts. Lord, help me to share um, relevant pieces uh, of how you've worked in my life over the years. I thank you, Lord, for your grace, Lord, which, Lord, I don't even think that I have a small understanding of how awesome your grace is. And so, Father, I pray that through this day of worship and celebration and fellowship, Lord, that you would um, draw us close to you. May we have a deeper relationship with you day by day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I share about my childhood, uh, beginning with my paternal grandfather, who graduated from The Ohio State University. And, and re really, that's the, the line of my family that, that is sort of the good side. I, uh, it's my mother's side that, uh, well, really not even my mother's side, my mother herself, my, my biological mom, who's passed away at this point, she was an extremely, extremely abusive uh, woman, extreme alcoholic. I was number six of seven children from her. Um, we had different dads. And uh, I'm not really sure. Like I, there's, a, there's a number of stories to tell, but being raised in an abusive home, you don't really realize the abuse that you're under. It, 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 um, as I've talked to those who have been raised in abusive situations, I've, I've come to learn that there seems to be like a moment in your childhood experience where the light bulb sort of clicks on and you go, this, this isn't normal. And for me, I was in this home with this lady who was extremely, extremely abusive uh, she was also very religious, which was hard to sort of piece together, which skewed uh, my understanding of God, even though I do believe from a young age I had to sort of a, a God-word bent in my heart. Um, the moment for me when I realized that my situation wasn't normal, I was in about third grade. Uh, we were living in Lake Tahoe, and my mom was in a fit of rage about something. I, I don't know what the fit of rage was about. It, this was, it, it happened so often. And I remember at that moment, uh, I, uh, my mom was coming at me, and she'd punched me in the face. And as, I, as she landed the punch in my nose, uh, my nose began gushing with blood. And at third grade, it's, it's difficult to share this story. Now that I have a third grader that's my child, I don't understand how people could do this to children. Uh, but for us, this was normal. And when I looked down and saw this gushing blood, even uh, as, a, as a young child, even though this lady who was, uh, her wrath came out upon me horrifically, in that moment when I saw the blood, my reflex as a child was to turn to my mom for comfort, for, for assurance, for help. Uh, I was bleeding, I was hurt, I was in shock. And so the woman who landed the punch on me was the woman I turned to. And as I turned to her, looking for comfort, like, Mom, my nose is bleeding, I received a second punch in my face. And it was at the delivery of the second punch that the light bulb sort of came on. This isn't normal. <laughs> I, I'm not a bright guy, but at that moment I knew this isn't how a mother was supposed to treat her child. The first punch I sort of understood, but the second punch... After I was bleeding, that didn't seem very motherly to me. And so through these early years, um, in hindsight, I see that God was probably using this to prepare me for SEAL training. Um, 
I remember going through SEAL training during Hell Week in particular thinking, at least my mom would pass out. Like, these guys just keep going. Like, they, they won't stop. Um, I, I ended up being told a lot of things about my mom uh, or, or from my mom towards me. Things like, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. Uh, you're just like your father. Things that no child should hear. And so I knew that I had to get out of this situation. I felt like she was going to kill me eventually. Um, the opportunity came when I was 11 years old to where I could testify in court uh, to, to get my younger sister and myself out of the situation. And I remember uh, testifying before the judge, um, saying that, uh, explaining to him why I needed to leave. And I had to do this in front of her. And that was the last time I saw my mom. Uh, we we had a number of exchanges over the phone throughout the years and before she passed, um, but that's that's not really relevant to the story, and I'm limited by time. But through my childhood, I, I had this sort of um, longing for significance. I um, I remember going to high school. My dad got custody through my testimony against my mom in court. And so I didn't have the foundation educationally sort of to succeed in sixth, seventh, and eighth. I started in sixth grade up to, up to 12th grade. So I, I didn't have the, the, the educational foundation. Uh, growing up with my mom, homework wasn't really a prov uh, like a priority for me. It was more about survival. And so when I got into these years, my, my way to find significance was through being a class clown. And I was very good at it. Um, I was very good at sports until my grades would, would bear. I tried to keep eligible for sports, but most of my early life, especially after I got my driver's license, it, if there was surf, I was going surfing. And so um, that didn't really work out well um, educationally. I, I realized that by the time I was 18 and I was a senior in high school, that I wasn't probably going to get into any university nor was my dad going to fund me to go to junior college and sort of party like the rest of the kids. Um, and so I decided that I would go somewhere where they couldn't tell me what to do. I was going to be my free man. And so the place that I was going to do this, I was going to become a Navy SEAL. And uh, I told you I wasn't a very smart man. I thought in the SEAL teams I would have a lot more freedom. And, and I thought entering into the military that I, I, would, um, I would gain significance. I would fill this void. I would find value in who I was. And so I began through the process in, in uh, 93. I would go start with Bud's Class 98. I would graduate with Bud's Class 98. And there were certain steps along the way that, that I thought if I, once I achieved that part, I would feel significant. I would have value to my life. And so one of the things in Hell Week, you go, you start Sunday afternoon, it goes all the way to Friday. Uh, your class disappears because people wash out uh, because they're dropped or because they quit. A lot of them quit. And at the end of the day, what you get is a brown t-shirt. Hey, brown shirt is just kind of dawned on me. So you go from wearing a white t-shirt to a brown t-shirt. And before Hell Week, I thought all all I need is that brown t-shirt, and I will have significance. 
And so as I hobbled through the medical line on the last day Friday of uh, very few people that were still remaining, I thought, I'm going to put on that brown t-shirt. And you know what the brown t-shirt felt like? Just like a white t-shirt. I like that was really anticlimactic. This is just a brown t-shirt and not a white one. And so I'm going to keep going. I thought, well, if I need to get through training, uh, we, we graduated. We start, Bud's Class 198, we started with 180 people. 14 of us made it through. Uh, I went on to SEAL Team 3, and after six months at SEAL Team 3, we get the, the, the Budweiser, not a can, but a, a gold bird that we put on our chest, or it's pinned on our chest. That means that we've actually become a Navy SEAL. And so I thought, when I get to that point, the brown t-shirt didn't do the trick, but the gold trident would. And so I remember getting that trident pinned on my chest, but the problem with the gold trident is it was just fake gold over something that was one more thing I had to keep straight on my uniform. And I still sort of had this feeling of insignificance and insecurity and, and not really comfortable with myself. And so life would go on. I began to um, compete in various ways. Everything in the SEAL teams is a competition. Like We have sayings. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And, and the thing that I became good at was drinking. And I was the guy that would lead the party. I was the guy that would buy shots for everybody. And on July 2nd, I always get the date messed up. It's 1995. I often say 2005, the story, and my wife would be looking at me like, Gunner, it's th you're making it sound like it was last weekend. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, 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 it was a decade ago. I, I got the dates wrong. So on July 2nd of 1995, I was 20 years old. I actually, um, the story kind of backs up. It's before I got my trident. I had literally just checked into SEAL Team 3. I had been out drinking with a bunch of my friends from high school, and uh, I started throwing up because I drank too much. So I thought it was time for me to go home. So I hopped in my car, my 1971 Super Beetle, and I, 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 I got home. On the process, I rolled through a, a stop sign, or that was the accusation. I, I don't believe it was true, but I know I was guilty. I was definitely drunk. But when I saw the sheriff and he started chasing me, I hit the lights and I sped through the neighborhood and I got home and I got into a foot race and I... I won, sort of in the short term. I got away from the officer, and they impounded my car, and it led to this long series of things. They, they were surprisingly able to catch up with me. Uh, when I showed up at SEAL Team 3 that Tuesday morning after the holiday, the command master chief said, hey, are you a Seaman Hansen? I said, I need to go to your office, don't I? He's like, yes, you do. And so I went to the office. It led to a, about a two-year journey, a year-and-a-half journey, where I ultimately... Uh, fought the case, pled guilty, was resolved in the courts, but what happened is I lost my security clearance. And when you lose your security clearance as a Navy SEAL, you are not a Navy SEAL anymore. You cannot do anything without a security clearance. And so this led to a really what I refer to sort of as my rock bottom years. Um, I, lo my, I lost my identity. My whole identity was built upon being a SEAL. For those of you who serve in law enforcement or um, there are certain vocations that are not just, they're not like your job, they're your identity. And so my identity was stripped from me. Uh, everything I'd worked so hard for at this, by this point I was probably 22. I um, 
had a good friend of mine. He is my, was my best friend's older brother. And he, uh, he found Jesus somewhere along the way. I didn't know that Jesus was lost at the time, but he wouldn't shut up about him. And it was really annoying. So I'd lost my security clearance. I, got pulled off de- I was getting pulled off deployment. And my best friend's older brother just started nagging me about going to church and, and about Jesus. And I, I was so fed up because I told him I knew all about church and, and Jesus. My, remember my religious crazy mom? That, that was what Jesus was to me. And I wanted nothing to do with it. But my dear buddy JR was persistent. And he wouldn't give up on us, uh, me and my best friend, who is now a believer. We all are believers at this point. And he wouldn't, he w- just wouldn't go away. He wouldn't stop. And I realized that I had to come up with a, a strategy to get JR off my back for asking me to go to church. And I remember thinking, you know, I got a perfect plan. I'm going to say I'll go to church once. But the condition is he has to promise me that he will never ask me to go to church again. And so he conceded. He said, I, will prom- I promise I'll never ask you to go to church again if you just go once. But I need to tell you something. There's free pizza at church. And I said, huh, okay, I'll, take, I'll, I'll follow that one away. And I showed up at church on a Tuesday night for their Bible study. It was taught by an ex-pro surfer who, was, who had some points with me. Everybody suddenly at church seemed sort of normal. I had this idea that Christians were a little wacky, and I didn't want anything to do with them. And so here I found myself with this pro surfer teaching the Bible to us this one night. I didn't have a Bible on me. And I, uh, I, I listened. I ate the free pizza. That one week turned into another week because it seemed like, oh, you know, I'll go back. There's free pizza there. I'm young. I don't have a lot of money. And, or I was wasting all my money. And, and so I would be going to the bars. I'd be wasting all my money drinking and partying pretty much Wednesday night through Monday night. And then on Tuesday nights, I go to Bible study. And now I was starting to listen to the stories. I, I, I started to, to realize um, that they all had the Bible. I, I'm probably short on, I probably don't have enough time to go into that story, but I failed buying my first Bible. I, um, I thought, I mean, all these Christians have Bibles. I, I don't want to stand out like a sore thumb. So I'm going to go buy a Bible. And what I ended up buying was like this devotional. And and the pastor's like, hey, we're in whatever, the Gospel of John. And so I'm thumbing through the book. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like, what's the date? What date are we on? Like, we're, but it turns out that a Bible is different than a devotional, but I, I had no clue. And so over those years, it was probably a period of six months. Um, I really, even though I was going, arguing with the guy in my head, there were things that really were standing out to me about the Gospel. And it was one night a friend after church, he, he hit me up and he said, hey man, how's your relationship with Jesus? Well, I knew the right answer. I'm like, oh, we're good, man. Like, we're tight. We're good. We're, we're a good relationship. And I remember going home that night kind of wrestling through this whole, that word relationship just kept really cutting me to the core. I never heard religion described in this way. I, I thought that going to Tuesday nights was good enough. Like, I'm going to church. What do you mean relationship? Like, I don't get it. And um, through that wrestling match, I began to see that this God that they were talking about wasn't some two-dimensional God, and we weren't just uh, checking boxes off the list of things that we were to do, but there was this sort of this personal relationship where they 
when they were praying, they were really they were really praying to this greater being, and and uh, I I really began to buy in. I, I wish I could tell you that I um, that from that moment my life just changed. It wasn't as clear for me. It wasn't until many years later. If that was in 1996 in May of 2000, I uh, I connected with an old buddy of mine. In the SEAL teams, we went through training together. We, we happened to cross paths at SEAL Team 3. And it's like, hey, man, you're in town. Yeah, I'm in town. And hey, what are we doing? And I noticed that the Padres were playing the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta. And my friend was from Atlanta. And so I said, dude, let's fly to Atlanta this weekend and watch the Padres clean up on your Bravos sort of thing. And he, uh, he's like, that sounds like a great idea. This idea was construed in a bar that Friday night. Um, I left that part out, so we were pretty drunk by the time. It was pre-9-11, so you could get away with a lot more. Somehow we managed to get plane tickets to Atlanta. We flew to Atlanta that night, caught two Padres games. The drinking by Saturday morning, I'd, st- I'd kind of weaned off the bottle, and my, my, I believe I was a Christian at this point. I started to feel just riddled with guilt, like, oh, Gunner, how did you end up in Atlanta? Like, how did you do this? You were doing so good. And then your buddy, who was my kryptonite, just somehow fell off the wagon. He continued to drink the whole weekend. And I was stuck in Atlanta. Like, I wanted nothing more than just to get out of Atlanta, to get to church. I'd started going to church those Sunday nights. And, and so we finally, Sunday finally came. My buddy had been drinking the whole time. Like, day, just three days on end, I had stopped drinking by Saturday just feeling riddled with conviction that, um, that I knew, like suddenly this real God was real to me and it was like, this, I, this isn't right. And so we finally boarded the plane that Sunday afternoon. I was hoping to make it in time to church that night, but there was no way I could make it. We loaded up in the plane and I could hear the people like 10 rows behind me, like, like the seat behind me and then the whole, like for 10 rows, there was a church youth group, and I had the pastor sitting right behind me. And they were talking about Jesus, and they were talking about what God had done in their life. And I'm like, this is terrible. Like, this is like, I'm just sitting there. My buddy's to the left of me, drunk as can be, and, and becoming belligerent. And I remember holding a book. I couldn't read, but I'm like, I'm just going to act like I'm reading so that they don't think I'm connected to him. But then he kept talking and talking, and he's hearing them talk about Jesus, and he's getting angry. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to go for another strategy, so I'm going to pretend like I'm asleep. And so I was pretending like I was asleep, praying, Lord, please, could you just make him pass out? Could you do something? And then I noticed that when I was pretending like I was asleep, when the flight attendant would come by, he would order a drink for himself and then a drink for me so that he could drink my drink. And I'm like, this is getting out of control. And he finally reaches the point where still three hours out from San Diego. And he stands up, turns around to the group, and he's like, I don't want to hear another word about this Jesus. I sleep with prostitutes. And he lists all the stuff that I knew wasn't true. But he was saying this stuff to offend the 10 rows behind me. And I was like, this is the worst flight I've ever been on in my entire, like, entire life. And he sits, he sits down, and I was just horrified. I think the whole post-traumatic stress from this event is sort of blocked out of my memory. 
The next thing that I remember is landing in San Diego. We got out of the terminal and the group was still behind us. And he looks at me and he says, if I, I seriously, if I hear that guy say Jesus one more time, I'm going to go punch him in the face. I'm like, brother, what? What's the matter with you? You're starting to offend me. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Gunnar, I, I believe just like you that there's a God in everything, but I don't believe in this whole Jesus. And it was like he took a, a knife and stabbed me in the back and twisted it. And I was so, so riddled with guilt that I, I knew I had become a Christian by that point. I knew who Jesus was. And here my best friend in the world looked at me and he says, I believe just like you do. And he was wrong. But the problem was my belief, what I, what I believed in Jesus didn't translate into those that were closest to me, even knowing that I'd become a Christian. Because my life didn't demonstrate it. I remember going home that night. I was in between deployments and I was actually at the SEAL Team 3. That's a whole other story. I, I, but I'm at the SEAL Team 3 compound, and I'm in my cage. It's sort of like, imagine a jail cell that we have for our gear. Um, that was our locker. And so I remember kind of, not literally crying, but in my heart, sort of being so sick of myself and so sick of this, uh, the duplicity of my life and realizing what a hypocrite I was being. And I couldn't see how to be a Christian. I, I didn't see how the whole Christian life worked out. And so I remember sort of sur surrendering to God. Now, don't, don't take that in the Christianese way, because Christians use this surrendering to God, meaning they surrender and, and they begin living for God. That's not what I'm... I, I surrendered in the, that I can't do this whole Christian thing, God. Like, I, I read through the Bible. I see all these great stories. I see all these great truths but they're not working for me. And so instead of going around saying that I'm a Christian, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, and I'm just going to live my life in the flesh. However, I'll give you one last shot, God. If, if, if you're real, and if all of the things, I remember kind of holding my Bible, if this is true, then you're going to have to do something because it's not working what I'm doing, but I'm not, I'm not going to try to do it anymore. I'm just going to live my life, and we'll see what happens. Well, here I am, a pastor. <laughs> Careful to praise you prayer, the, the prayers you pray. And um, so from that moment, things began to change over the next few years. Um, God really got a hold of my life. I, uh, I, I didn't mean to go into the ministry. That was totally accidental. I, I, I had a bunch of questions, so I thought, well, if I have questions, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the Bible. So I read it through cover to cover. And I thought if I read the Bible, all my, answers would, all my questions would be answered. But the problem is by the time I got to the end of the Bible, I had a whole bunch more questions. And then so I thought, well, where do I answer these questions? So then I started doing Moody Bible Institute courses sort of on deployment. And the next thing I know, I'm in Bible college just trying to answer questions. And then I'm starting seminary. It's like, well, where, where, where's this leading, Gunner? I don't know. I'm just trying to learn more about the Bible and live my life. I don't. And then it dawned on me, do you think you're called to the ministry? Well, no, because I've got tattoos. I'm like a total like drunk. Like I have all these issues. I wasn't drinking at that point, but I, I have this childhood past. Like I can't, 
I'm disqualified. And so then through this whole thing, I, I think by the end of it, and where I'm getting at with this, I had this mom who told me I was worthless. And so many people come to Christ with this sort of feeling that they don't want to go to hell. And, and really my understanding of coming to Christ was more about this understanding of this creator, this one whom created the heavens and the earth and everything that we can see and touch, that he knew me and he loved me and he created me and, and he, he wanted me to have a good life. Like he wanted me uh, to, to live in a way that um, would be pleasing to him and, and a benefit to me. And so um, I'm thankful for the work that God has done in my life. My prayer is that uh, wherever you are in your relationship with God, that you would come to see him as your heavenly father who loves you deeply. Um, it's amazing to me what he's done from that moment. I wasn't married at that time. Uh, that was in 2000, I think, that that happened. By 2002, I was married to this girl. I, I don't even know what she was thinking. Her dad was the pastor at the church at, that I was going to. And, and when it came time, I, when I, this is like, I'm tired. Like I'm, on, I'm on Pacific Standard Time, so I tend to get goofy sometimes, and uh, my mind wanders. But I asked him if it was okay for me to propose to his daughter. And he said that would be fine. And so then two weeks later, I still hadn't proposed, but my, my wife had under, she knew that I had kind of talked to him. And she's like, did you talk to my dad? I'm like, yeah, but I think you made a mistake. And so I, I went back to him and I said, hey, hey John, um, you know what I asked you if I could marry your daughter? And he said, yeah. I'm like, do, do, you, do you understand that like when I was asking, like I, I'm like thinking like right now I want to propose to her and I, I just want to give you a chance to back out. He's like, I thought we already had this talk. I, you're fine. And so it's, it's, it's amazing to me what God can do. And, 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 and I think so often there are those in, that have come to Christ and maybe here, maybe have had like an abortion in your past, which I had, or alcoholism, DUI. There are things that I thought were sort of disqualifying to me. Um, but I've come to learn that God is a God who can restore, can redeem, can give you the worth um, that he wants you to have. And um, it all begins by you kind of falling before him and acknowledging what Christ did for you. And that really is the gospel message, that, it, it, that, that Jesus came to this earth. He was crucified, not because of any sin he committed, but because of the sins that we have committed. And that he did this out of a great love for us. And what, it, what we're told in Ephesians 1.13 is that after hearing the gospel that Jesus died for you, that he was buried, that he rose again, that after hearing that, we have a choice, a decision. Uh, by default, we reject it. But by believing, by trusting, by walking with him, we're given this opportunity for life. And so my prayer is that each of you would Come to know who he is, and if, you're, if you are Christians, which I assume the, the majority of you are, that you would fully walk with him in obedience, because our life is short, and we're going to give an account one day for how we've managed the things that he's given. And so um, with that, I'll, I'll end. Let's close in prayer. I'm probably way over my time. I have no idea what time it is. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord for how good you are to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to come into a greater understanding 
of the vastness of your love, the vastness of your grace. We thank you for the mercy that you have um, poured out upon us. We thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray for those in this crowd who maybe were like me, uh, really struggling with what is the gospel? What is this whole relationship with God thing all about? Um, Father, I pray that you administer to, to each one of these who is searching whether they realize it or not. Um, Father, that you would connect the dots for each one of us that we could live life fully um, for you. I thank you, Lord, uh, for how good you are to us. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.